Um, it kind of gives me an intro into what we are going to talk about. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. And uh, we want to talk about how you and I really don't believe that it takes only one man or one woman uh, to shift things around. But the fact remains that a very small percentage of change agents, as in 3% of a nation, if they behave a certain way, 3% of a church, 3% of a community, if they behave a certain way, can begin to frame, shift, and transform their systems or their culture. Their systems or their culture. And so if you took the years 600 BC to 2020 AD, you're talking about 25 billion people who've lived during those times, and it took about 3,200 people, that's all it took to change or shift civilization over the number of years that have existed. Over the last 2,800 years, it took less than 3,200 people to bring about massive shifts in how the world functions. It takes very few people, and I'm not even uh, approaching Christ or Christianity or the church right now, I'm just talking about the world. These are, these are stats from the world that when the top 3% of any nation, any community, any church, any corporation begins to behave a certain way, just 3%, that it has the power to shift, transform, or frame that culture or the ethos of that place. It always has. That if you took the year 600 BC to 2020 AD, 25 billion people were led than less than 3,200 people. These 3,200 people, and I'm sure Steve Jobs is one of them, actually were involved in shifting the way the world functions. And this is without Christ. Without Christ. What I want to achieve today is to help me and to help you understand that it takes only one man. You do not need more than that. We are a majority of one. When I say man, don't get hung up about man because I mean woman too. I'm not saying it to you. I'm not saying it to anyone who's listening five years down the road. But if this can be achieved in the world without Christ, what happens when you and I actually think that this can happen through one man or one woman. So what is God's expectation? God's expectation is that you will step into the gap between Ezekiel 20 to verse 30. Uh, so God's expectation is, can my people step into the gap between Ezekiel 22, 30 and 2 Chronicles 16, 9? Can my people step into that gap? And what does Ezekiel 22, 30 say? That's God's hope. That guys, Jacob, can you step into that gap? Because my son did. And so now that he lives in you, can you step into that gap too? Ezekiel 22 verse 30. Ezekiel 22 verse 30. I looked for a man among them 
who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. I'll stop there because I believe he finds people now. Ever since his son Jesus Christ came on the earth, I believe that when God goes looking, he finds. So there's this scripture and then there's a scripture in 2 Chronicles 16.9, which many of us know. And 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, God's eyes roam to and fro across the earth looking for somebody he can show himself strong on behalf of. And it's in this gap that God wants you to step into. So on one hand, there is Ezekiel 22 verse 30, where God is saying, hey, I'm looking for someone. Jacob, can you be that someone who can step into the gap? I'm looking for a man who can do that for the sake of the land. And then at the other end is, if you do that, then here's what I'm going to do. My eyes are roaming to and fro so that I can show myself steadfast on behalf of someone who is loyal to me. And when you decide that you are willing to step into that gap, now it takes one man to change things in nations, communities, world, movements, culture. Things change. Jesus did this. God was looking for a man. Jesus stepped up. And God's eyes roamed to and fro, found him, and decided that from now on I'll be steadfast to him. This is my begotten son. Hear him. This is where we are going. I want us to understand that there is nobody in this room Nobody in this room who's exempt from becoming a majority of one, affecting the earth. You'll probably not be heard of. You'll probably not be known. But the Bible has stories and characters that change the world because they were willing to step into this gap. It's a shame that we are not following in the path of the Hebrew 11 heroes. If you read Hebrews 11, 35 to 33 to 35, everyone, every incident there happened to a person, a man, a woman. Turn to Hebrews 11, 33 to 35. Hebrews 11, 33 to 35. I'm starting at verse 32. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, about Barak, about Samson, about Jephthah, about David, about Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle, routed foreign armies, women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were uh, tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed into, they were put to death by the sword. They went about the she in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, but they were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us, they would be made perfect. The point being, guys, all those stories in Hebrews chapter 11 happen to individuals. So am I suddenly individualizing Christianity? No, I'm preaching to all of us so that all of us begin to step into this position as individuals. Any questions? It takes one man takes one man. So let's look in at scriptures and see whether this is true. Go to Ecclesiastes 13. Ecclesiastes, uh, I don't think it's 13. Let me just see. Uh, let me just quickly Google it. It's about this poor man who had great wisdom. Uh, can someone find it? 
Ecclesiastes 9. Verse 13 to 15. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. So this is a true story that Solomon is saying. That he actually knew of a man such as this. There was once a small city with only a few people in it. And a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom, but nobody remembered the poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are no longer heard. Now you can take many morals out of it, but one of the things you need to realize is that a man, one man with wisdom can save an entire city. Cry out for it. Cry out for it. One man with wisdom can save an entire city that, can, that would otherwise be removed from the face of the earth. This was an actual story that happened. Solomon wasn't spinning a parable. This actually happened. One man with the wisdom of Jesus Christ can save a city and nation. Everything that God did throughout biblical history was through one man. And finally he created the one man called the church. We'll come to that later. But everything in the Bible was done through one man who stepped between Ezekiel 22.30 and 2 Chronicles 16.9 and launched himself. And whenever they were afraid, God would come and try to build them up. He says to Jeremiah, don't say you're just a youth. I've set you up to plant, to pull down, to restore nations, to tear them down. It's always one man. We've got to capture the one manness of how God starts things. Because it's easy to wait for somebody else who's more gifted, more charismatic, more Holy Spirit anointed, more positional to do the work when God is looking for really everybody in this church to become that one man through which he can wrought miracles here on earth. And by miracles, I'm not talking about raising the dead. I'm talking about shifting an entire group or tribe of people. Let me give you another one. Number 16, 46 to 48. Number 16. Number 16. 46 to 48. And the strange thing is Jesus is all these examples I'm giving. Eh? I'll give you eight or nine or ten examples. And after I'm done through those examples, you'll realize that Jesus actually took on every one of these stories upon himself because he had to be that one man. Number 16, 46 to 48. Then Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put incense in it along with fire from the altar and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord. The plague has started. So Aaron did as Moses said and ran in the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. He stood between the living and the dead and the plague stopped. But 14,700 people died from the plague in addition to those who had died because of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of the meeting for the plague had stopped. Imagine this, eh? one man becomes a dividing line one man becomes a dividing line i've seen paintings of this where you see a man who looks relatively frail with a sensor in his hand running up and down eh, with a group of people on one side lying dead and the other side literally covered by him alive takes one man takes one man for your family takes one man in this church takes one man in a community takes one man in a city takes one man in a nation god is looking but we don't think that can work with us. 
When I tell you the qualifications of what is required, it is available to most everybody. Aaron wasn't even God's first choice. He defaulted to Aaron because Moses was resistant. A dividing line, a plumb line, a covering to some where it's literally 1 Corinthians 2 being played out. To some, I become the fragrance of life. To others, I become the stench of death. But you become a dividing line. One man. Let's take another one. Numbers 25, 7 to 9. Numbers 25, 7 to 9. Guys, you have no, no idea of how much power rests in that one man when he begins to step into places like this. You don't know how many lives are saved. You don't know how many mishaps are prevented. You, know how, you don't know how many wells are dug and how much water is provided. Because one man decides that he is going to step into that gap. 14,700 dead on one side and about a million alive on the other side. Why? Because one man runs with the sensor. Connect to men and women like that and your life will benefit. Connect to men and women like that and you will benefit. You will reap the benefits of that man running up and down. Connect to them. Don't connect to things because it's your tradition. Connect to it because it is life. Numbers 25, 7 to 9. Oh my God, I can go down another track if I wanted to right now, but I won't. Numbers 25, verse 7 to 9. There's a time for some those things. Numbers 25, 7 to 9. Let's start at 6. Then an Israelite woman brought to his brought to then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. When Phinehas saw of when Phinehas, son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand. Aaron, come up here quickly, quickly, Aaron. Come, 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 come quickly. Come up on stage. Father, I just lay hands on this boy right now and pray, Father. Come, 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 come. Don't worry. Father, I just lay hands on this boy right now and I pray, Father, an aggression to begin to uh, descend on him, a holy aggression, a holy aggression. Where even in his loose uh, boniness, there will be these times when his entire body becomes taut and tense because he knows there's an assignment given to him. Where he will not lose his um, drawl in walking and talking and thinking and playing. But there will be these times where suddenly, out of the blue, he'll know the stirring of the spirit. And everything in him will become tense, will become alert, will literally... Uh, be like an arrow that is in a bow that is about to be released. And that when that happens, he will know what needs to be done. He'll finish it and then go back as if nothing really happened. I just pray that upon this boy at a very young age in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you, Aaron. Thanks, man. Guys, Numbers 25, 7 to 9. 
um, when Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear through both of them, through the Israelite, and into the woman's body. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped, but those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. Here was a man whose zeal halts what could have been disabling compromise. Here was a man whose zeal stopped what could have been disabling compromise. If Israel had gone down that route, then Balaam would have achieved what he always wanted to achieve. Balaam wanted to contaminate Israel. Numbers 23, Balaam's ended, his curses didn't work. Along comes this woman brought in to again, once again, draw Israel into sexual immorality and idolatry. And there is one man whose zeal halts disabling compromise and stops what needs to happen. Balaam later succeeds where he brings in women from Midianite tribes to once again connect with the Israelites. And guess who kills Balaam? Phinehas. Sometimes you need just one man to have enough zeal to halt disabling compromise. One man. And you'll be highly unpopular, eh? Because Christianity demands tolerance now. Christianity demands diplomacy now. To have Christians who begin to rail against that which is a compromise is seen as um, not a kosher thing to do. Everyone's told to pipe down. You're either patronized or you're tolerated. But my God, if God gives you something that you have to be zealous over, step into that circle, draw a circle around yourself and stand there and say, this will be my lifelong attempt that I will stand and speak against what is false and I will stand and speak for what is true, come what may. One man, one man. All that Martin Luther accomplished in his life was that the just shall live by faith. That's all he accomplished 500 years ago. That's all he accomplished. The just shall live by faith. That's all he preached. That's all he accomplished. 1 Kings 18.22. 1 Kings 18.22. You know the story. 1 Kings 18.22. Then Elijah, then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. One man. One man who becomes a voice that returns God's people into a place where they're reformed. One man. All reformation is started by one man. Show me a time in the history of the world where reformation happened through more than one man. It was always started by one man. 
And when that one man starts, he has to endure because not everybody will join him. A few ragtag people will join him, but it begins there. What do you think we are doing, man? What do you think I've been doing for 16 years? I will see it. I will see the church reformed. I will see the church beginning to function as a house, as a family, where sons and daughters gather around the father, and anything the father does is possible for every son and daughter. We will raise people. We will raise sons and daughters. This will become norm. One man starts reformation in any area. It doesn't have to be in church. It can be the culture of Christ in your business, the culture of Christ in social work, the culture of Christ in worship. It doesn't matter. But it always starts with one man. And then others join. And then you become a people who are reformed. And once you become a people who are reformed, now you have a model that someone can look at. When one man starts something, there is nowhere he can go to present it as a model because everything that he starts must be reflected in a people. Jesus had to find 12 so that he could pass on to them who he was and how he functions. Now that the 12 caught it, they could be sent out so that they could now create communities that could reflect the very thing that Jesus taught them. One man starts it, but he begins to build around himself a people. And once you have a people who behave a certain way, now you have others that can come and say, aha, it works amongst the people. What happens with Christian superstars, and there are plenty of them, what happens with Christian superstars is they begin to take on the one man responsibility, but they never raise a people. And so all you have is one man on TV that you're looking at. Where are the people? Show me the people who reflect what you learned and do it better than you. You get it, right? Can't be. Otherwise, when it becomes a one-man thing without it spilling over, percolating into a people, then you have Christian superstars. Go ahead, Brandon. Okay, now say it without the mask. <laughs> yeah, I'll get there in about 23 minutes. Yeah, I honestly will. I have that. And if I don't, you can repeat the question again with and without the mask. Guys, a voice that prepares the people for reformation. I think of guys like David Wilkerson. Ah, so unpopular when he was around because his message was so hard. But even today his voice resounds. William Wilberforce changed slavery. Had to fight for years. Eh? Dano, some of the things that have been given to you, you'll have to stand and fight for years. It won't come in one or two 
years, man. Sometimes you have to stand and fight for years before change happens. One man it takes. One man. Why do you have to fight for years? Because you've got to build a people who now have the same DNA and can run with it. Martin Luther wasn't a perfect man. Had theology that stunk. But my God, the one thing he kept saying again and again and again, enough, the just shall only live by faith. We are the product of that, eh? One man. Either think in terms of one man or think in terms of majority of one. Because God is the one who does the work. Majority of one or one man. But it, all it takes is one man. Ah, you don't know the fire in my belly with regard to this teaching. I think without having preached it that it is one of the best teachings I've taught, even though I haven't taught it yet. Because if we get this, God will not go around looking for that one man. Second, First Kings 22. 1 Kings 22. Ah, what a dearth of this is there today in the world. 1 Kings 22, 11 to 13. You don't know how difficult this situation must have been for Micaiah. 1 Kings 22, verse, let's start at 8. The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat. Let's start at verse 7. But Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat asked. Let's start at verse 6. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, about 400 men, and asked them, Shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it to the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, There is still one man through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He's Micaiah, the son of Imlah. The king should not say that, Jehoshaphat replied. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Bring Micaiah, son of Imlah, at once. Dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance of the gate of Samaria, with all the prophets prophesying before them. Now Zedekiah, the son of Canaanah, had made iron horns and declared, This is what the Lord says, With these you will gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. But all the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. Attack Ramoth Gilead and be victorious, they said, For the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, Look, as one man the other prophets are predicting success for the king, let your words agree with theirs and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells him. And then he tells him the truth after hesitating once. Guys, one man, the, this thing with this one man thing is you have to refuse being validated at the table of your peers. You have to refuse being validated at the table of your peers. It's a common thing in prophetic circles now, especially in North American prophetic circles. One man either says something true and everybody regurgitates it, or one man says something false but he's famous enough and everybody parrots it. If you want to be this one man, you have to learn how not to want validation at the table of your peers. Everybody else might be saying the same thing. But if you are hearing a different sound, you will have to check it out, test it out, verify it, get it right, and then speak it, even if you're not invited to that table again. 
Very few prophets in North America exist that do that. I mean, the, you just have to look at the U.S. right now to see how it works. One man speaks and if he is famous, the others will join the choir. You're not listening to the voice of God, you're listening to the choir. Refuse to be validated at the table of your peers. Refuse to be validated at the table of your peers. Hebrews 11.12 Hebrews 11.12 Hebrews 11.12 Through one man God births ancient agendas that he has spoken of. Through one man God births ancient agendas that he has spoken of. Hebrews 11.12 Hebrews 11.12 And so from this one man and he as good as dead came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore because God had promised that through, I will raise up a nation. I will raise up a nation. The seed that I am sending will crush the serpent's head. I will raise up a nation. Go to Isaiah 51.2. It says the same thing. Isaiah 51.2. Isaiah 51.2. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave you birth. When I called him, he was but one. And I blessed him and made him many. Guys, understand that God starts everything with one man. I pray God that some of you will be known. Guys, the other thing is, if you want to be this one man, you have to have not an opinion, but, an, but a God-sent word to speak that does not dilly-dally, that doesn't choose gray. Some of you at Acts 29 choose gray. One of, the, one of the hardest things I had to work on Derek when he first came to Acts 29 was Derek would never say, his actual opinion. He would say, yes, it is true that this happens, but we also have to look at this side. Yes, it is white, but it could also be gray. And I remember sitting with him, driving him around saying, Derek, a time has to come when you have to stop becoming someone who portrays both sides of the equation like CNN. Have what you think is a God-given opinion on things and begin to speak them because this is what you think. It's not just an opinion. It is God-informed. Some of you, and I hope you know who I'm talking about, have the ability to say very little, ask you any question, and your response will be, maybe, yeah, kind of, all right. Come see, come sir. Get over it. It's not the way you can be that one man. If that's hard-hitting, it's because I'm speaking to you. If it's not hard-hitting, let it go. Guys, it's through one man that God usually brings this forerunner ability. He goes and clears the way for others. Next one. 1 Samuel 17. 
8 to 10. 1 Samuel 17, 8 to 10. 1 Samuel 17, 8 to 10. 1 Samuel 17, 8 to 10. Famous story. I'm never tired of reading this story. Every time I read it, I see something else in it that I've never seen before. 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 17, 8 to 10. How many years we've been reading this? Hey, at least 40 years? Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. At least 40 if you're over 40. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you, aren't you the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects in service. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismay, dismayed and terrified. What we don't realize is one of the things Satan does is he always tries to engage you in a one-on-one -on -one battle knowing that most Christians will not engage him one-on-one. -on -one. Pharaoh becomes chief. He takes on Moses. Herod takes on Jesus. Goliath takes on David. It's an old ploy of the enemy. You see it in the movie Troy, where Brad Pitt has to go, Brad Pitt has to go and fight the other nice guy. It, pardon? I was just talking about a worldly movie. I don't know why you're responding so confidently. I'm kidding, James. <laughs> Hector. So, um, so he, we just gave you your membership also. How could you? <laughs> so, guys, here's the thing. It, it's an old satanic ploy to bring forth Goliaths against the church, against the people of God. And oddly enough, Satan is confident that there are very few in the church that are skilled to stand up against anything one-on-one. -on -one. But Christ is looking for those one-on-ones because he knows that an entire territory can be taken if one steps up and conquers the Goliath. Rather than fighting through minions, rather than fighting through armies, rather than fighting through foot soldiers, you take that one and the rest of them flee. This is why they decided, to, the enemy armies decided to go after Ahab's chariot because they thought if we defeat Ahab, the entire army will scatter and then they found out that Jehoshaphat was dressed up in Ahab's clothes. This was an old ploy. It's an old satanic ploy. If the leader of a community, of a church, of a people, of a house church, of a family, of a two-family, two-people family unit, if a leader does not know how to take on the enemy in one-on-one -on -one battles, life becomes very difficult. One man. Any questions? One-on-one -on -one battles is um, you know something is coming against your family. Say um, um, suddenly you realize that there are mishaps happening in your family. People are falling sick. There's strife happening in your family. And instead of dealing with it from a, either a, a, a mental point of view or an emotional point of view, you sit down and you decide to figure out, Father, why is this happening? What is it that's coming against me? You begin to find out what it is that is coming against you. 
And then you begin to take a stance because you realize that you are the gatekeeper and that you will be the first one that has to face this. And if you face it well and defeat it, then not only do you save your family, but you get extra ground. Paul would go into places and he would, even before he preached, be able to dismantle the powers that reigned there. There's almost an apostolic edge to it because we find that Philip went to Samaria and Philip was not able to do some of the things that Peter and John could do when Peter and John were sent by Jerusalem to Samaria having heard what Philip had done. And then guess what happens? Simon Magus gets dismantled. Acts chapter 8. Philip was doing signs, wonders and miracles. Simon actually believed. But when Jerusalem heard about it, they sent to Samaria Peter and John. And then things began to change dramatically. One man. Strange thing is, it operates both at the level of a family, the level of a church, the level of a city, the level of a nation. David goes up. The rest of Israel doesn't. Goliath is doing what Satan has done for years on him. Send me your best man. Because he knows that for some strange reason, the people of God rarely have the ability to take on their best man. We've got to surprise him, man. Show him that it isn't status quo. That it is no longer how it used to be. That without making much noise, without indulging in flailing spiritual warfare, that we understand authority and have the ability to take on their best and then take on his territory. Genesis 45 verse 7. Sometimes God does this too. Genesis 45 verse 7. He'll send you ahead to save an entire nation. Entire people group. 45.7. Genesis 45.7. This is Joseph speaking to his brothers. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and save your lives by a great deliverance. One man, Joseph, is sent ahead to preserve a remnant. When you are sent somewhere, do not hold on to what you used to enjoy doing. Go and do not amend what you're being sent for. Hear me again. When you are sent somewhere by God, then do not hold on to what you used to be doing. Because you're being sent far ahead of time to preserve or raise up a remnant. God sends one man to raise up a remnant. If Joseph hadn't gone, and he, if he hadn't endured what he endured, Jacob and his sons would not exist. Israel would not exist. There would be a tribe today called Ephraim, but not Israel. There would be a tribe today called Manasseh, but not Israel. Israel would not exist. When you are sent, let go of what you used to engage in. And do not amend what you are being sent for. Oh, the next one blew my mind. Even though I've known it, Matthew chapter 1 verse 5. You can change the, your past in terms of generational past, 
cultural past, you can change it. And then you can launch your future, your generational future, your cultural future. Break out of cultural and generational traps, snares, um, uh, strongholds. Here is a prostitute called Rahab. One woman changes the nature both of a pagan Canaanite background and of a profession by joining Israel. And who does she marry? She marries a guy called Solomon or Salmon or Salmon. And guess who they begat or gave birth to? They gave birth to a guy called Boaz. And guess who Boaz marries? Boaz marries a Moabitess who has no business in Israel. And Boaz marries Ruth. And Ruth and Boaz give birth to Obed. Obed gives birth to Jesse. Jesse gives birth to David. And Jesus is called the son of David. Why? Because one woman decided that she would go against everything that her tribe, her people, her city said she should do. You can change your generational and cultural past when you decide you'll stand between Ezekiel 22.30 and 2 Chronicles 16.9. I beg you, do this. Don't get trapped in your generational and cultural past because it will weigh heavy on you and it will defy God. Remember, the only thing that nullifies Jesus' principles is the tradition of man. Nothing else can come against the word but the tradition of man. It's not time yet, Phoebe. Hey, there's no church, there's no Vietnamese church after this. Just so you know. (laughs) So this one's going to go long. We're in no hurry to get out. There's so many other scriptures I can give you. One man, Isaiah in Isaiah 45, one prophesies about a man called Cyrus. And he says, Cyrus, you don't even know God. But God is going to pull you out and he's going to use you. And what Cyrus does, this pagan king empties his treasury to rebuild Jerusalem and to give back everything that is required for the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. Who does he do it to? Ezra and Nehemiah. One man it takes. One man it takes to prophesy and one pagan who did not know God it takes to restore the temple to its glory and to rebuild Israel. Its walls. Ezra and Nehemiah benefited from Cyrus's largesse. Takes one man, guys. Okay, so let's look at what this one man needs to do so he can function well to answer that question that Brandon had asked. Who was it, Brandon? Warble Beast, okay. It's all Emily's fault. Okay. So, if you want to be this one man, uh, here are some of the things we need to start doing. Seek, seeking the generic and the specific. Seeking the generic and the specific. Seeking the generic and the specific, as in create time to go and begin to uh, 
seek God for his generic commands and his specific commands because it is in that process that the God that God tells you what he has for you so if you go to Isaiah 6 8 it was a generic statement that God was making when he says who shall we send who will go for us it wasn't directed to Isaiah Isaiah happens to hear it as perhaps did others but Isaiah is the first to respond and he says send me I will go send me and so one of the things we need to do is create time to seek God for the generic and the specific. Create time. Create time like Joshua did in Exodus 33 verse 11 where Moses would leave the tent but Joshua would stay in the tent. Create time. Create time like in Psalm 84 verse 2 where it says, uh, or verse 11 where it says, I'd rather be a sentry in the house of the Lord. Verse 2 also says something about seeking God. Psalm 84, verse 2. Can someone read it out? Psalm 84, verse 2. Thanks for all the help. Psalm 84, 2. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar. Oh Lord, I, uh, no, verse 2. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Guys, create time. Once you create time, like Joshua did, like David does in Psalm 84. No, it's an Asaph Psalm. Like Asaph does in Psalm 84. What happens is you begin to pick up on God's generic invitations. And then once you pick up on God's generic invitations, now that God has your attention, he takes you to Revelations 4.1 or 4.2, where it says, very specifically, John hears a voice and he sees heaven open. And it says in Revelations 4.2, After this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Engage in this. This is where you start, guys. Engage in this. And for all of us it'll be different, eh? What are we doing? We are partnering with God in what he wants to do on earth. That's what we're doing. Any questions on the first point? Okay. Tough crowd, eh? Could be. But more than that, it is along the lines of, um, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an idea of a generic conversation. Um, bless him, I remember these people. So there, there used to be this really amazing uh, guy called Vic Rosado. Um, he's, much old, he's very old now, but he used to be an amazing apostolic church planter. And there was another guy from the U.S. who used to come to visit very often, and he was so full of faith. His name was Mike Hyman. And so these two guys would come to Bahrain every so often. And as soon as they w I knew they were coming, I would ask the pastor of the church to take me to the airport so I could carry their bags. And I would go to the airport to receive them. I was like 
hardly a year in the Lord. I would go to carry their bags. Why? Because if you sat in the back seat of the car while they were talking, you would hear things you just would not otherwise hear. And it would fascinate me, the stories they were telling. What was the intent? The intent was to figure out this God that I did not know being spoken of by people who had the experience of God. And so every time they came, I would plead to be taken to the airport so I could sit in the car. And I would not say a word. I'd actually carry their bags. Like real. Like I don't do it anymore, but I used to. But the point was this, that I wanted to hear of a God I had not experienced from people who had experienced that God. That is what an invitation looks like, where you begin to engage in or hear conversations, where you begin to marvel at this God and see the bigness of this God. That is what a generic invitation looks like. You're not even there to get some great nugget of spiritual truth. You are there to see how God functions. You are there to figure out God's mind. It's like going to a forum where Bill Gates um, and uh, what's the other guy? Warren Buffett and uh, um, Don Mulesheril are sitting and discussing finances. You can easily pick the odd man out. So it would be like that. You go there and you listen. Why do people spend a thousand bucks to have dinner with Warren Buffett? Not because of his looks. This is what I mean by generic invitation. It is sheerly for the sake of being in the same room. And out of that, now that God sees that, ah, shucks, Moses has left the tent of meeting, but Joshua is still hanging around. This boy has something that I can use. Next one. Once you get past seeking, go to authorization. 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 Authorization by the Spirit. Authorization by the Spirit. Authorization by the Spirit. This precedes, this precedes assignment. This precedes assign, assignment. This precedes empowerment. This precedes assignment and precedes empowerment. Meaning, you have to be authorized by the Spirit. As in, it should become evident that the Holy Spirit is behind what you're being invited into. How do you figure that out? You figure that out by first listening. Then you figure that out by verifying it with the Word. Then you figure that out with, is this what God has been calling me into? You figure that out by the prophetic spoken over your life. You figure that out by the people that you belong to is this where they are going to you figure that out by going testing it out with people who have walked this path before you figure that out by asking God to flesh it out elaborate on it some more and that is how you figure that ah shucks what God is sending me for is not from anybody else but him in Isaiah 30 verse 1 it says that Israel is on an errand errand which I didn't send them on they're making an alliance that I did not um uh, assigned through my spirit. Isaiah 30 verse 1. And yet in Acts chapter 13 verse 2, while they were praying and fasting, the Holy Spirit said to the group that was gathered there, set aside for me Paul and Barnabas for the assignment that I have for them. So there's an authorization that has to happen by the spirit before you get an assignment or before you're empowered for it. And it isn't complicated, guys. It isn't complicated. 
Before you can do any work at the airport, this guy, uh, what's his name? Um, Evan works at the airport. Evan goes to places in the airport that you and I cannot go to. Why? Because he's got a badge. He's authorized. Once he's authorized, then he can go and finish his assignment. You need to be authorized by the Spirit. And these are the ways you're authorized by the Spirit. This is answering the previous question um, that um, Wobble Beast was asking. Yeah, uh, but after Derek and I had the conversation, we realized that was not his motive. So, <laughs> nah, he was, he was. <laughs> there was nothing. There was nothing redeeming there. <laughs> and and but but see, even when even when I, uh, you have to discern before you find fault. Yeah, finding fault without discernment may either become judgment or may become error. So if I am looking, if I want to find fault with you, I don't need to listen to God. I just need to listen to the devil. He'll give me all your faults because he's the accuser. But if I'm actually trying to find a fault with you that needs correction, then I need discernment to know, one, that it is something God is pointing out. Two, that it is something God wants to address now. Three, that I have the ability to address it without dissing you or trashing you. That sometimes was in God's intent, but I might still do it, but that's my personality flaw. But to, to find flaws without discerning always ends up in problems, and that's what the church does, see? The church finds flaws without discerning. But if you are someone that God has placed to help people, you need to discern what the Holy Spirit is saying, and then sometimes be ruthless about it, sometimes be disciplined about it, sometimes be kind about it. Like I said, diplomacy is not a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So use discernment instead. Authorization by the Spirit. As in, make sure that what you're doing is initiated by the Spirit. Like I said, Isaiah 30 verse 1 says, Hey Israel, what you're doing, I did not initiate. You're making an alliance that is not of me. Make sure it's initiated by the Holy Spirit. Make sure you're appointed to it by the Holy Spirit. Make sure that people around you recognize that it is the Holy Spirit and you are in the flow of things. Make sure it's sustained by the Holy Spirit and make sure it's concluded by the Holy Spirit. Third thing. Obedience. 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 Before you obey, count the cost. Before you obey, count the cost. This thing that God is now asking me to take a stand for as one man so that he can change a culture, a nation, a city, a region, a family, a church. This thing that God is asking me to take a stand for. Am I willing at this present time to pay the cost? And if you think you are not, give yourself another year and go tell somebody, I cannot at present because I'm scared. I cannot at present because there's 
too much involved. I cannot at present because I have far too many responsibilities. I need help. And then try it again a year from now. If you are sincere, God does not uh, shut that window. It is when you're insincere, lazy, uh, disobedient, trying to skirt things that God says, okay, I'll come back later. Otherwise, the window stays open, man. But count the cost. Because it will cost you your reputation. It will cost you your family. It will cost you your friends. It will cost you money. It will cost you uh, being not understood. It will cost you um, a, a, a backlash from culture and from the systems of the world. Count the cost. And it's not a one-time payment either. Laban's and Delilah's will continuously try to barter and ensnare as you keep going down this road. It's fascinating how Abraham in Genesis 12 is told to leave his nation, his land, his country, his clan and go to Canaan. Guess what he does halfway through? He decides to go to Egypt. God didn't tell him to go to Egypt, but he decides to go to Egypt. Why does he go to Egypt? Because there was a famine in the land. The same man who was obedient and paid a cost of leaving clan, country, people, now goes to Egypt without being told. And for that entire period of time, there was no voice of God till he returns back to Negev after that terrible incident with Abimelech taking his wife because he pawned her off as his sister. And then he comes back to Bethel and Negev where he started off from near the Oaks of Mamre. And that's when God starts talking again and Melchizedek appears to him. Sometimes your navi goes on the blink when you short-circuit obedience. And it's not that God is saying, I won't talk to you because God's voice will be active in other areas. But in the area that you were assigned, there will be silence because the navi is on the blink because you decided not to follow the lady who says turn right and you went left. Next one. Guys who want to take this on, one man or one woman being able to change things. Finishing. You have to learn how to finish. John 4.34. Jesus put it this way. I have been sent by my father to finish his work. Many are sent, few finish, man. I'm telling you, this is a serious problem. Um, you know, uh, I, I heard another preacher say this, that 30%, only 30% of the people in the Bible finish their assignments. Only 30% of all the heroes in the Bible actually finish their assignments. Moses didn't, Aaron didn't, Gideon didn't, Ananias and Sapphira didn't, Judas didn't, Mark didn't, Barnabas didn't. Josiah didn't, Asa didn't. They were supposed to clear the high places. Very specific instructions were given. Only 30% of the heroes in the Bible finished. So this finishing thing is an age-old problem, eh? And yet Jesus very clearly says, I've been sent to finish the works of God. And later on in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, when Paul is saying goodbye to the elders of Ephesus, he says to them in Acts 20, 24, listen, 
I have given you the whole counsel of God. I've finished everything I was given to do. I've given you. I've finished it. There's this thing that is required in terms of finishing, guys. It's critical. Finishing requires discipline. You know, uh, at the, uh, w- when I went through these different points, I began to audit myself. I began to audit myself. Where am I falling short? Why is it that I cannot yet be this man? Where am I falling short? And one of the areas I find myself falling short is finishing requires discipline. As in repeat, 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 repeat. On good days, on good days, on bad days, on bad days, on boring days, on boring days. Repeat. Finishing requires discipline. 1 Corinthians 9, 25 to 27. 1 Corinthians 9, 25 to 27. First Corinthians 9, 25-27. Do you know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? No longer do we run for the prize. We run saying, money, money. Odikyo, odikyo. That's Greek for run, run. Just run, no? just participate. I'll give you a certificate. If they don't give it, I'll print it for you. No, we run for a prize, man. First Corinthians 9, 24-27. Twenty-seven. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets a prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Finishing requires discipline. The problem with this finishing thing is we start so eagerly, right? Is your eager willingness matched by completion? 2 Corinthians 8.11, in a totally different context, says, since you've expressed such eager willingness, are you going to complete what you said you would do? He's talking about it in terms of money. But I want to draw that principle out. Jacob, is your eager willingness matched by your completion? Next thing, again, taking a scripture out of context, Galatians 3.3. We all start in the spirit, but do we finish in the spirit or do we finish in the flesh? Because we got bored of it, tired of it, ran out of enthusiasm, don't see it as something that needs to be finished. So just finish it in the flesh. If you started in the spirit, finish in the spirit. And then Another scripture that I'm pulling out of context is from James chapter 1, verse 4. In the process of discipline and perseverance and endurance and learning how to finish, are you maturing or are you a complaining, grumpy old man that people want to take this assignment away from because you're making their life miserable even though you will finish? Two more and we're done. Ah, we're still doing good for time. It's not four yet. Next one is eagle eye. You can call it whatever you want, but I like calling it eagle eye uh, this week. Eagle eye. Eagle eye is the eye of faith that opens your mind to the spirit. Eagle eye is the eye of faith that opens your mind to the spirit. 
eagle eye is the eye of faith that opens your mind to the spirit. It, perf- it, it permits you to discern things spiritually, not by your five senses, not by your logic, but it permits you to discern things spiritually. And this is critical if you want to be that one man that is able to change things. How does Phineas know that it is actually being, it, it'll actually be zealous if I take a javelin and thrust it through the man and the woman? How does David know that even though his brothers are there, even though King Saul is there, and even though King Saul is giving him his own armor, that he's not supposed to take on Saul's armor, but he's supposed to go with what is very natural to him, which is the five stones and the sling. How does Elijah know that fire will come down, even though there are 450 of them and there's just one of him? How does Micaiah know that 400 prophets are prophesying one thing and there were prophets being sought by the king of Israel and the king of Judah and yet he alone will stand and say something different and it will actually happen. You cannot go by your five senses. You cannot go by your logic. You cannot go by your peers. You can only go with eyes of faith that open your mind to the things of the spirit. This is how one man or one woman can take and change things. How does Rahab know? A pagan. How does she know that I need to align with these people? How does Ruth, who's a Moabitess, say what her sister-in-law, who was from Israel, could not say when she said, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. How How do people do this? In George Bush Sr.'s home, There's this rock, and on the rock are four words, four letters. I've said this before. C-A-V-U. And it's a a term used by um, um, fighter pilots, ceiling and visibility unlimited. Ceiling and visibility unlimited. That is what happens when you have an eagle eye. There is no limit to what God can now allow you to see and allow you to begin to think is possible. Kavu, C-A-V-U. Ceiling and visibility unlimited. That is why you need the eagle eye. Guys, try to process who you are and what you must do through the eyes of the Spirit. I, 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 I try so hard to do this. I, I sit and try to process who I am on a weekly basis because sometimes when I look at myself, sometimes when I look at things I do, look at the size of the church, look at how little I have, when you are being asked to do ridiculous things, I think to myself, if I don't process my life through the eyes of the Spirit, if I don't see who I am and what I must do through the eyes of the Spirit, there is just no way I can attempt it. You know, Jacob does something strange in Genesis chapter 30, verse 39, with his sheep when he has to separate them from Laban. He takes them, makes them face the barks that are speckled and spotted, and then they begin to reproduce, and they reproduce speckled and spotted uh, kids. And then he takes them away and makes them face in another direction so that when the rest of Laban's flocks come, that they're not facing Laban's flock. And I heard a preacher put it this way, and I love the way he phrased it. He said... Once they became what they beheld, he did not let them behold something else. Once they became what they beheld. Once they became what they beheld. Once they became what they beheld, he did not let them behold something other. Once they became what they beheld, he did not let them behold something other. 
once they became what they beheld, he did not let them behold something other. Once I've seen what God is calling me to, I cannot then keep looking at my importance. Abraham had the ability not to do that. He refused to look at his importance. He refused to look at his wife's importance. Once he beheld what he, God said he had become, he refused to behold anything else. That's when you are no longer moved by what you see or what you don't see with your physical eyes. Anyone who has to change the world, any man or woman who has to change things must learn how not to determine things by what you see or don't see with your physical eyes. But you have to learn now to frame your world through your spiritual eyes. You have to frame your world through your spiritual eyes. In 1 Kings 18, you see Elijah doing this brilliantly. 1 Kings 18. First Kings 18, verse, let's start at verse 43, and then I'll go to 41. 1 Kings 18, 43. 1 Kings 18, 43. Go and look towards the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. So here is Elijah who is telling his servant to go look and he's seeing nothing. But look what Elijah has already said in verse 41. Look what Elijah has already said in verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink for there is the sound of heavy rain. You cannot trust your physical eyes if you want to be that one man or one woman that is about to partner with God as God is changing the world. If he doesn't get you, he'll get somebody else, guys. He's got plenty of people now with Christ living in them. That gap is continuously being filled. You must realize that you're usually the second or third choice. So here is Elijah, does not trust his eyes, told his servant seven times and there's nothing. And yet two verses preceding, he's already told Ahab, hey, listen, I hear the sound of rain. Why? Because he begins to frame his world with what he sees spiritually and not what he sees physically. And he speaks it, man. I won't even go there today because we've spent a lot of time talking about speaking. Last one. Meekness. Why put in meekness there? Because it's important in this whole context. You know, um, when you guys uh, wrote scriptures for me on these little pebbles and gave it to me for my birthday, yesterday I pulled out a stone and it was from Marcus, Marcus and Lorian Marcus. And uh, Marcus had put down Matthew 5.5. 5. And it says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And as you go about being that one man or woman that God is using to change cultures, nations, territories, regions, reforming systems, and so on, stay unassuming in self-forgetfulness and surrendered strength. Stay unassuming. Stay unassuming. Stay unassuming in self-forgetfulness. Stay unassuming in self-forgetfulness and surrendered strength. In self-forgetfulness 
and surrendered strength. Stay unassuming in self-forgetfulness and surrendered strength without isolating from people who correct you. Without isolating, without isolating from people who can correct you. The last word is correct. Stay unassuming in self-forgetfulness and surrendered strength without isolating from people who correct you. Because once this thing begins, guys, you will be surprised at the clout, the authority, the command, the spirit realms that you uh, will be shown, the way God operates. And man, if you and I can't maintain meekness through it, then it's only a matter of time before one of two things happens. Either you cross boundaries or you fall into the uh, one-man syndrome that Elijah fell into. Uh, let's look at both of them. One is in First um, Kings 19, 10. First Kings 19, verse 10. He had just taken care of 450 prophets of Baal and uh, some uh, followers of uh, Jezebel. And then in First Kings 19, 10, this happens to him. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. That's the one-man-only syndrome, where it's no longer... Sure, Elijah was that one man God was using, but now that becomes a boomerang, where it comes and knocks him out, where he now begins to say, woe is me. Or you can look at what happened with um, Uzziah in Second Chronicles 26. Uzziah in 2nd Chronicles 26, verse 12. Uzziah, 2nd Chronicles 26, verse 16, sorry. Let's start at uh, half of verse 15. His fame spread far and wide, for he was greatly helped until he became powerful. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. He, he, he crossed a boundary. He presumed that because he was now beginning to do what he was uh, beginning to do, that he could take on assignments that he was not given. He was a king. He was not a priest. He was not supposed to do that, and he went ahead and did it. This is what happens if meekness is not maintained. These, uh, I mean, I don't know whether it helps at all, but either you can put all this under safe.mo, if that helps, seeking authorization, uh, F was what? Finishing, uh, E was, what was it? E Eagle eye, M was meekness, O was obedience. And if that doesn't work, then I thought of do re mi fa so la, mi fa so la. I'm just trying to be super helpful. <laughs> so whatever acronym works for you, you said mi fa so. Uh, sounds like a Japanese word, but let's go with it. Um, so, or, or is it Spanish? Because usually uh, Derek would know if it's Spanish. Because I've heard him going to that Brazilian place and saying, Mifaso, and they usually kick him out. So I don't know what that's about. So, 
So uh, choose one of these and then go home and ask yourself this question. If I audit myself, where am I coming up short? Where am I coming up short? In which areas am I coming up short? I'm finding that my, my struggle is in that discipline when it comes to finishing. That after a while, I switch over to something else that I find is perhaps a little more exciting or I don't continue with what I need to develop in terms of discipline. That was one major area for me. And then the other thing was creating time and des to desire, dream, and be like Joshua or Psalm 84. My father, just because I spent one hour with you over the last 10 years, can I just up it to two hours instead of keeping it at one hour? Because you've got so much more you want to do. If what you're doing today is the same as what you were doing two years ago, then I would suggest to you that you're not growing. This is the only relationship where just because you know a person doesn't lessen the time you spend with them, it increases the time you spend with them. I want to show you a picture of a guy called, put up the other picture. Not too many people know this guy. I love that he's not well known. His name is Christian Führer. German, used to pastor in a church called Nikolai Church in Leipzig. Every Monday from 1980 onwards, 1982 onwards, he began to have a prayer meeting. Few used to gather. Kept at it every Monday from 1982 to 89. And what would they pray? They would pray against the Cold War, atheism. And what was their favorite scripture? the Beatitudes. They would go over the Beatitudes again and again and again. In 1989, there were 70,000 people who marched out of this church. And it is the only revolution known in the world where there was no violence. Because he actually believed that the way to take down the Berlin Wall and to bring an end to the uh, rule that then used to prevail in GDR was through the Beatitudes, through nonviolence. And so over a period of eight or nine years, he kept at it. The police didn't know how to handle it. They said, we don't know how to handle candles and prayer. People used to come to him and say, you don't really think that your candles and prayers can change something. And it did. And one of the things he said really bothered me. He said, it's not the throne and the altar, but the street and the altar that belong together. It's not the throne and the altar, but the street and the altar that belong together. What he was trying to say was, listen, if you are approaching the throne of God, or if you're at the altar of God, then it must percolate into the normalcy of life and not just stay in the church. He died about four or five years ago. But as I was reading about his life, and I didn't know about him till about two days ago, I thought to myself, wow, shucks. Nobody knows that he was so, such a critical part of bringing the wall down. Nobody even knows it. You're hearing it for the first time. Guys, all kingdom breakthrough happens through sustained resistance to present status. All kingdom breakthrough happens through sustained resistance to present status. All kingdom breakthrough happens through sustained resistance to present present status, which means then that if I lead this church or if you lead your family or you lead a house church, it is required that I resist in you that which is present status. That is one of the things I must do. 
if I see in Liji things that he is holding on to, that he is resistant to leaving, that he holds two pressures above kingdom and above king, then it is required of me till he either tells me to leave or till he stops me to resist that so that it breaks because all kingdom breakthrough, whether it be in church, whether it be in my life, whether it be in your life, whether it be in a nation, whether it be in a culture, does not come to pass. All kingdom breakthrough only comes to pass when there is sustained resistance against present status. And to do that, you can use a chisel, you can use a scalpel, you can use a hammer, you can use a bedpan, use whatever you want. I mean, bedpan as in to knock the person out. Use whatever you want. But there's no other way of kingdom breakthrough. And guess what opposes kingdom breakthrough most? It is opposed violently by the religious spirit. It is opposed violently by the religious spirit. And it is co-opted deceptively, deceptively by the spirit of the Antichrist. Two things that we need to be aware of. If you go down this road, be sure that you will face resistance from the religious spirit. The religious spirit as in the spirit that puts tradition and religion and um, rites and rituals and ways of doing things that have absolutely nothing to do with Christ. Sometimes coming from the previous generation as in me. If I am influenced by the religious spirit and one of you young guys come up with something that the spirit is doing, I don't want to be the one that resists you because the religious spirit always opposes any breakthrough in the kingdom. And the other spirit that will come against you is the spirit of the Antichrist. And the spirit of the Antichrist works differently. It doesn't try to cheat you. It just co-opts you. As in, now that you have a movement going, let me offer you a platform on CNN. Or let me offer you some money. Or let me offer you a place in the Congress. Or let me offer you a tour of the White House. The spirit of Antichrist always co-opts the Christian church. It has done it for centuries. We Christians are, are suckers for baubles. Throw a few trinkets our way, now we'll suck up. Jesus Christ was the one man who fits all the above and is to be imitated. He was wisdom. He was the man who was the dividing line. He was the man who would not compromise. He was the voice that reformed everything. He would refuse validation at the table of his peers. He would birth ancient agendas. He was the one man who subdued the devil. He was sent to preserve us when famine hits. He regained our past and our future. He restored our fortunes. He sought his father created time with his father. He was authorized by the spirit, sustained by the spirit. He was obedient to unto death. He finished what he started. He saw things with his <laughs> spiritual eyes. He had meekness that nobody can match. And this Christ now lives in me. We have been made one new manner. Ephesians 2 verse 14 talks about it. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 to 11 talks about it. Galatians 6 15 talks about it. One new man. Let me end.
Hey guys, um, I really believe that God wants to do really impactful, dent-leaving, large people group affecting um, things through you who are sitting here and listening. And it may not come with any recognition, and I know that doesn't matter to you. And I praise God for that. I can say that confidently about you. But if you don't take on this mentality of it takes one man, then you will wait for someone else who is ahead of you or someone else who is doing well or someone else who is more gifted or someone else who has more money or someone else who has more influence. I can't wait for that. I want to leave the earth saying what Paul said, that I have finished what was given me to do. And I haven't seen the half of it yet. Honestly, I'm so dissatisfied with what I've accomplished. And it's a, it's a happy dissatisfaction. I plead with you. This is, a, this is a teaching both for now and it's a kairos kind of teaching. And by kairos, I mean there's a fluid moving of God upon you through this teaching if you want it. But it has to change your way of thinking. You have to go over these mifaso or safe mo. You have to go over it and decide whether you are willing to step up into this gap. I will. I will. Remember this. We are the only people who are for the benefit of the non-members of this church. Everything we are, we are for the benefit of someone else. God is going to do all these things, not for you. It's for someone else. So it doesn't matter if you're not heard of. It doesn't matter if nobody writes a book about you. It doesn't matter that you've never heard of um, Christian Führer, who was instrumental in bringing the wall down. Nobody knows about him. Which is so odd, but so brilliant. Any questions? Surrendered strength looks like strength that I know I have that is at the command of someone else. And so I refuse to turn stones into bread even though I have the power to do it. 